0: Welcome to the Leadership Now podcast with Dr. Aaron Rock. Aaron has served as a pastor, as a professor, and a chaplain, and he has a keen interest in helping others to think Christianly about all of life. So on this show, we talk about the nuts and bolts of theology, church life, cultural issues, pastoral leadership, ethics, and other relevant matters that will help you to lead better now. I'm your host, Chris Eelman, and today's title is Four Doctrines that Christians may not actually believe. So what we want to do today is to wrestle with the connection between Christian knowledge and Christian faith and how those two must come together for belief to truly be belief. So maybe Aaron, you could introduce us to this topic and kind of bring our listeners up to speed. Happy to. And in fact, I'm looking forward to this podcast because I think it's really, really relevant for us
1: to think through the connection between what we say we believe and what we actually believe. So I want to start off by just uh, defining or describing our understanding of what belief is, Christian belief is, also known as saving faith and sustaining, sanctifying faith. It's all part of the same package. We're interested in these issues because the Bible is interested in these issues because our reformational forebears were interested in these issues. And because I think that there's a tie in between the failure that we've seen in many churches and their response to current events and this discussion about what belief or faith truly is. So if you go back and you study uh, Luther, the Protestant reformers uh, they were very concerned about defining and putting boundaries on faith. What, was? What is faith? What is belief? What does it actually look like in the Christian church? Now, you might have heard the language sola fide by faith alone. But they also spoke of fides viva, which essentially means living faith. They were, they were wrestling with the question, what is living, active, vibrant faith in the life of the Christian community? And in order to help us to understand what faith, viva fides, what uh, living faith actually looked like, they, they borrowed three common Latin words to describe the sort of building blocks or the elements the different aspects of Christian faith. So the first is notitia. So that sounds a little bit like knowledge, notitia, knowledge. And that part of faith, true faith, is basically when you are confronted with a truth claim. So it's about content. So when we're studying scripture, we're reading scripture, hearing scripture preached, and someone says, Jesus Christ rose from the dead, when you believe that to be true, that truth statement to be true and accurate, that's notitia. So you're receiving, it's, its cognitive faith. Mm-hmm. You're hearing a claim, you're hearing a sermon, you're, you're reading a passage of scripture, and you, you believe uh, cognitively what you've heard. But then on top of that is a census. A census is when you... You assent to it, you approve of it, or you agree with it. So, for example, the devil knows that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. So, in that respect, you could say he has notitia. Hmm. He he knows that it's factual. Uh, A non-Christian historian could study the resurrection of Jesus Christ or some of the other biblical claims, theological claims in scripture and say, yeah, I know that. But that doesn't mean they've assented to it. They've approved of it, that they have agreed with it. So in the Christian faith, we would say it's not enough just to know about God and the claims of God, but you also need to assent to them. And then fiducia is where this is the third building block of saving faith and sanctifying faith is when you actually trust or put your faith in it. And these three aspects of belief are fundamental. So if if a person comes to church and says, oh, I, I agree with everything that's said, they have notitia. If they then say, you know what? I, I'm gonna accept that or approve of it. So I'm not, maybe let me just be a little more clear. So with notitia, you've heard the truth claim, you've cognitively understood it, in a census you've assented to it you've approved of it you've agreed with it but faith, fiducia is when you you allow it to transform your life you've trusted in it you've you've rested in it now one of the things i often mention when i'm preaching on texts that are more doctrinal where there's propositional claims made about scripture, God, sin, salvation, mankind, whatever topic we're into, is that it's one thing to believe it to be true, but it's another thing to allow it to transform you. This is really critical. Now, Protestants come from a history, especially the evangelical reformational branches of Protestantism, where we're very concerned about crossing the T's and dotting the I's in terms of our theology, our doctrine, mm-hmm. it's truth, 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 truth. We, we tell young men, you know, preach the truth, preach the truth, preach the truth. And you go to, if you go to a good seminary, you'll, you'll wrestle through issues. You'll be maybe exposed to different viewpoints. And then, um, you know, you, they want to equip you to be able to communicate that truth to others. But there's a problem when that truth doesn't transform us, mm-hmm. when that truth doesn't affect The way we think, act, feel, prioritize, ask for forgiveness, confront, live our lives. Truth is not just, it's not enough to just preach biblical truth in terms of this, what the Bible says, what the Bible says, what the Bible says, content, 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 doctrine, doctrine, doctrine. Okay, let's pray and have the benediction. We want to to help, and and obviously this is ultimately a gift and work of the Holy Spirit, but we are agents that he Mm -hmm. uses. We want to preach truisms, propositions, images into the minds and lives of our people, but we also want them to accept it as their own and approve of it, a census, and then put their faith in it, like actually allow what they have heard to be lived out in space and time. Otherwise you just end up with people that are correct in their thinking and their beliefs, but their lives are not transformed by it. So, Here's a good biblical example. In 2 Thessalonians 2.13, it sort of contains these three elements. I'll read it uh, for us. The Bible says, and we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, so that's sort of notitia, "You've, you've heard it, you received it, you've got it, you know it. It goes on to say, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as what it really is, the word of God. So this would be what we would call a census. Mm-hmm. You've you've received it. You'd be like, I I receive that and I I agree with that. And then the verse ends this way, which is at work in you, believers. So it's work it's working to change the way that you live, the way that you act, the way that you feel. So we wanna believe the right thing, we wanna accept it for our own, not just as some random historical fact, and we wanna tr- put our faith in it and allow it to do the work that it's supposed to do inside of us to transform us. When, when you and I, Chris, study, um, study history, or mathematics, or chemistry, or carpentry, technology, whatever it might be, you learn certain things to be true and certain things to be false. It doesn't necessarily transform you. It's just facts. When, when you're confronted with various truth claims, you need to weed through them and then accept the ones that are accurate and reject the ones that aren't. And that, but then it, it, there's a sense of which it should affect the way that you then live as a biologist, chemist, carp, carpenter, Whatever. So it's this is sort of a really critical, and I, I want to sort of tie these these aspects into. Um, so just some comments that I've I, I believe there's a lack of fiducia fundamentally in the Christian Church today, and so while while people say they believe certain doctrines to be true, four of them pretty significant doctrinal issues come to my mind and based upon how I've seen people respond to the issues of our day over the last couple of years, I would propose that while they say they, they believe these things, it's really just notitia and a census, and maybe at times not even a census, but the fiducia is actually lacking there. Mm -hmm. I also want to remind our listeners that your sincerity of belief is, is not enough we we want to acknowledge that just being really 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 convinced that something is true is not enough because there's people that practice all sorts of foreign religions or mm-hmm. you know, f- f- um, false religions I should say that are really 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 super convinced and sincere in their faith they have the notitia census, fiducia but it's it's lies mm-hmm. so I, as 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 I press for people to adopt a full-orbed view of biblical faith. I don't want them to think that just because they're really, really convinced of it that they necessarily are truly regenerate or true Christians. It does require a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to truly uh, bring about saving faith. So I, I do not want anyone to go away from this podcast thinking that I'm pressing for some sort of a self-induced, psych myself up. I just super, super, super convinced this is true. So then, I, therefore I must be... Mm-hmm. S- uh, accurate in my belief. You can be sincere, but be sincerely wrong about what you believe. So we we want people to put their faith in the beliefs that they've declared. And as I, again, look at these three building blocks of saving faith and sanctifying, sustaining faith, I would say there's a lot of Christians that have the knowledge they they've assented to it, but they've not actually allowed it to transform their lives.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a really important distinction to make. There's obviously those that are uh, not regenerate that have uh, placed their faith in the wrong thing, right? Faith alone doesn't save its faith in Christ alone. That saves the object of our faith is super important, but then, yeah, yeah, this, this third point you have here. So in terms of the fiducia that's missing, why do you think that is? Why do you think there's, Christians that are lacking the actual outworking of their faith?
1: Yeah, well, part of your question is going to become more obvious as I address these four doctrines, which we haven't gotten to yet. But I I think that part of it is we live in a, um, so I think back to my my years of seminary and Bible college, and I, I did appreciate almost all of the professors that that taught me, but m- frankly, the majority of them, and I, I, I'm not meaning to belittle, but I would say the majority of them were pretty good at the notitia stuff. They presumably had the assensus, but I didn't always see the fiducia there. Uh, there, there tended to be a, a sort of a, an emphasis on cognitive, cerebral, factual f- belief but there didn't seem to be a lot of demonstration that they were just passionate about this. They'd assented to it, and they were wanting it to ch- transform their lives, and that they they trusted it, and their lives were rich in faith uh, in Christ. And when you when you experience m- many many years of theological training, because by the way, the, the trained clergy are going to have the greatest amount of influence on the cr- Canadian church, and American church, and global church in terms of helping people to understand faith. So if you if you have those that are teaching the clergy that don't seem to demonstrate a lot of fiducia, but they're, they focus on notitia, what you tend to do is you create generation after generation of clergy that know truth and love to wrestle with different uh, viewpoints of every aspect of theology. But you, you come out of that not really necessarily even knowing what fiducia looks like, what transformational truth applied and appropriate in a person's life looks like. And you tend to pride yourself and put your confidence in your knowledge of scripture and Christian systematic theology. But when real life collides with your belief, you you don't even know what to do half the time. So, I think Protestants as a whole uh, have erred in reducing a reformational view of faith, primarily down to notitia, Mm. primarily. Primarily like, okay, Aaron Rock, if you're gonna preach, if you're gonna graduate from our school, if you're gonna be a prof or whatever, I wanna know what you believe about this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And so even in my ordination in 1997, fundamentally those are the questions that I was being asked. Like, Mm. give me your view of eschatology, hemardiology, angiology, demonology, soteriology, theology proper, and so forth. Not, not really any questions about, okay, if you believe a, what does that actually look like in real life? Like what, Mm. how does that affect the way you respond to Issue A, issue B, issue C, issue D, all the issues that you're going to experience. And I'll describe some of those in a moment. So we we create a clergy that have big heads. They know a lot, but they themselves are not really sure what transformational faith looks like. Now, by the way, when I, when I answer these kind of questions, obviously we're speaking in broad categories, mm-hmm. but I've been doing this for a long, 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 long time. And th- this is my, f- my, if I have any discernment, I think this is part of the problem. We, we've we created a clergy class that is knowledgeable. And so when they preach to you, you need to have faith. It tends to be more where you need to believe Jesus is God. He died on a real cross. He was resurrected three days later. Just believe it. Mm-hmm. Well, we do believe these things, but they're supposed to make a difference in, uh, the way we process life there's i would also say there i mean there's many reasons but one of the one that comes to mind is as i listen to clergy and professors and many sort of ranking christians influential christians today i rarely 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 hear them if ever willing to criticize science scientific claims Almost never, actually, it's like ta- taboo, mm-hmm. and they're they're willing to criticize, challenge, question the scripture, put new theories out as to what this actually means or what this doesn't mean, and they kind of create this no- this idea that there's you know there's an acceptable or allowable fifteen different opinions on every subject, but they don't apply that that um, kind of criticism, constructive criticism, or wariness to scientific information. So, for example, we're seeing man after man after man collapse when it comes to a a modern Darwinian scientific view of the creation of the world vis-a-vis a a biblical view of the creation of the world. Mm -hmm. So, people say, well, I believe in the authority of scripture. I, I don't believe that. I think many of them don't believe in the authority of scripture. Maybe on a notitia level, they think they believe in the authority of scripture, but on a Fiducia level, they don't really believe in it because they're always desperate to try to fit the Darwinian narrative about the formation of the world into the Bible, mm-hmm. rather than taking the Bible at face value. Which is almost it, that almost sounds like you're anti-intellectual in the modern church. Oh, you take it at face value. You're you you know you're a, an intellectual. Um you know, reductionist, you, you're you not a clear thinker. Like, don't you know that science has proven this? So we have all sorts of people coming out trying to impose theistic evolutionary views, Darwinian evolutionary views upon the Genesis narrative, which is factual and accurate. And um, so they say they believe in, in the uh, biblical record of creation, but actually they see science and obviously Darwinian views of science are godless as a godless view of science. They, they see the godless science of the world because it's so popular as actually, a, listen to this, a superior form of knowledge to divine revelation. I think many clergymen and professors today see divine revelation as sort of this elastic-y, uh, malleable, uh, ever-changing, sort of just your opinion version of knowledge, and science is the truth of all truths. And that is why, that is why, by the way, Chris, that in the last couple of years, we have seen the majority of the the, the North American church and its clergy and professors buckle to the interpretation of the state's view of how we should handle medical emergency and process, medical emergencies, pandemics, and our response to it, to the clear cut teaching of the word of God, which for example, just to repeat myself, validates the quarantining of the sick, Mm -hmm. but never validates the quarantining of the healthy, Mm -hmm. or that puts physical health, because that's fundamentally what Darwinian evolution is all about. You're just a body. Mm -hmm. So if you're just, if you're a worldview, If your anthropology says, look, if you're a human, you're just a biological biotic being. They put the the protection of our biotic health miles above our spiritual, social, and intellectual health. So, there's a lot of things sort of converging here. A Christian view would say that divine revelation is the most supreme kind of truth a human being can ever encounter. When God speaks, it's the truest form of truth you'll ever encounter. Not, not even it's it's more true than mathematics, which is a uh, p- pretty pure a uh, discipline. Um, you know, unless you get into some theoretical mathematics. But I think these are a couple of things. It's a worldview issue. It's an epistemological issue. It's a collision of uh, views as to how a person discovers truth and what how we grade truth almost on a gradient. So biblically, we, I would say divine revelation is the most pure. It is pure, uh, but it's the most pure form of knowledge a person can encounter. I think that many people in the West now believe, even those that claim to be Christian and claim to believe in the authority of scripture are more comfortable with a, a, um, godless form of revelation. They see science and that is more objective, Mm -hmm. more accurate, more trustworthy than divine revelation itself.
0: Mm -hmm. Which to me sounds like human reason elevated above revelation from God, which then becomes a form of humanism and idolatry of self again. So,
1: yeah. And that's, these are some of the, um, I guess this is some of the fallout of the epistemology of the, Enlightenment, the rationalism, the human mind, human forms of inquiry have become this, the highest forms of truth. And religious thought in broader society is clearly either thought of as just absolute foolishness and lies or just sentimental drivel or weak and you know unable to address the realities of life.
0: So let's get into the doctrines that you want to talk about. What's the first doctrine that many might not actually believe in?
1: I I think all Christians would affirm a high view of the sovereignty of God. I would affirm an absolute view of the sovereignty of God. I believe that God is absolutely sovereign over every single person, principality, power, authority. He's sovereign over everything. Now, we know in Christian theology that God is, for example, loving, and he's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's kind. He, he 100% is these things, and so you cannot define or discuss a true Christian view of God without acknowledging absolutely these things. But if you think about it this way, Chris, when, if, if God or any being— says, I am God, declares itself, himself, herself to be God. To be God, by definition, doesn't require that you're loving or merciful or gracious, but it does require that you're sovereign. If you're not absolutely sovereign, you can't definitionally be God. So it's, it's, a, it's a core fundamental Attribute of God that says he is sovereign. And thank God, our God is also loving and gracious and merciful and kind and just and so forth. So. We would say we believe in the absolute sovereignty of God. It's a necessary doctrine for God to be God, and it brings a great deal of comfort to us, knowing that God is in charge at the beginning and the end, and even if we don't understand it, God is still God. He's eternally seated on his throne. He's never been pulled off his throne. He is always king of kings and lord of lords. Now, if you truly believe that, and I'm, I'm, of course, allowing for moments when we backslide, when we doubt, when we don't act consistently as if we believe in the sovereignty of God. But if if you do believe God is actually sovereign, then there's not a lot of room left over in your thinking, your heart for worry, for anxiety, for doubting, or for fear. Is that not does that not make sense? It's very logically consistent. Yeah. So if God is sovereign, see, worry is like, oh, it's going to happen tomorrow or what's going to happen next week. And, oh man, I got to try to manage my way out of it. Or anxiety is like, I'm just crippled with these feelings that life is is chaotic. It's, it's out of control. I, I, you know, I'm terrified what's going to happen next or- oh man, am I going to die or am I going to lose my job or is my spouse going to abandon me or is my child going to ever come to faith? And these are things for us to obviously think about. And we all have times when we have these little sparks of fear or doubt in our lives. But as we reflect and meditate upon the absolute sovereignty of God, these things are brought under control. They're brought into submission under the absolute sovereignty of Of God, so look at this doctrine relationship to society. So we have profs, professors, churches, Christians all over the place in our own country and other countries say, "Oh, we believe in the sovereignty of God," but their actions say otherwise. Their actions say otherwise. They, uh, many clergymen, have peddled fear in their congregations more effectively than the state even has. I know of churches and even a Bible college that added rules to protect their people to the, to the rules, which I would consider overreach that the state even implemented Mm -hmm. mask mandates after the mask mandates ended lockdowns and physical distancing, even after those were required. And there's many reasons for this. Sometimes the people making these decisions are older people in positions of authority, tenured clergymen, tenured professors, and they're trying to protect their flocks or their students who are at very little risk of dying of COVID. But in, and in reality, I believe they're doing it to protect their, themselves because they are crippled with fear. They present it as a love your neighbor, but it's actually just, I'm just downright terrified myself, kind of a reality. Um, or they've immediately closed down. If there's any risk, you know, you're, you're in a church, let's say your church is two, three, four, and one person you find out is COVID. We're canceling the service. We're canceling it all week. It's not even, when well, it's not even required. When mask mandates required you to wear a mask, unless you're drinking, or eating from the front door to your seat. Many of these churches went beyond that. You had to wear them all through the service. Mm-hmm. So, That's called peddling fear. And if after two years, you're still living in fear, you're living in anxiety, whether it's fear of people dying or another huge one, unfortunately, Chris, is fear of liability. I know for Mm a fact that many of these institutions, Christian institutions, buckled, not because they agreed with it, not because they were convinced of the narrative, Many of them thought it was over, you know, heavy-handed. They just didn't want to lose their insurance. They didn't want to lose liability insurance. They they ran the math. I heard a, a man say, "We couldn't afford it," and mm-hmm. almost like, "Well, like
0: you guys can." yeah, well, yeah, well, yeah, we can afford that. Yeah, that's where we want to spend our money. Yeah, so, it's the same thing I saw when people asked us after the first illegal service, "Did you get fined?" Like, well, it doesn't really matter if you got fined or not. It matters if it was right.
1: Yeah. You know, I was talking to
0: a a Christian man in our church on Sunday who came to us from another church because
1: he was disgusted that their incessant surrendering of Christ's lordship over the church to the government. And um, there was a time when we had people signing uh, liability release forms. There was two fundamental reasons for that. A, we lost our liability insurance for a period of time because the nasty insurance companies wanted to, take no responsibility. B, um, I'm not concerned about the people that attend our church, but some of their family members were trying to cause problems. Mm -hmm. And so we basically wanted a written record that said, you know, I, I want to attend Harvest Bible Church and I'm making my decision to come and everyone else can kind of buzz off. So I don't really care if other churches did that. We did that, I think it was wise I, th- I think in light of the attacks, it was, it was a good way of, you can never fully protect yourself from attacks from other people, but I wasn't going to cast our pearls before swine, so to speak, unnecessarily. Well, um, friends of this fellow and other churches, oh, did you sign that form? All about money. Mm-hmm. They're concerned about, uh, Harvest Church is concerned about protecting themselves from you. Right, these are churches that are closed. People that are all about money, because and they and I I know some of who some of these people are, and the and the idea is that um, many of them come from a culture that is just everything in the church boils down to money for them, right? Mm. And they didn't want their friend who was attending here to have to pay in order to attend. Well, that wasn't the point of it at all. It was a total spin on the narrative. We weren't asking people to pay anything. We're just saying. Our elders, if they're going to take a bold stance for your benefit, so you can continue to be nurtured and equipped in the life of the church, we want to alleviate some of the stress and pressure on them, on our directors who are corporately liable. And we want you to provide us with a written record that says, I agree to be here. Now, this was, you know, a little while ago. and It was just something we felt was, was beneficial. So we didn't write that because we're, compromising our values because we're terrified of getting sued. We wanted to reduce risk. There's nothing wrong with reducing risk. But when when you say, we're not going to have church, mm-hmm. we're going to completely fold. We're not going to have church because we can't afford the public fines. That is... An, uh, an indication that you have not applied the doctrine of the sovereignty of God over the affairs of your church. I'm not required to let anybody into worship in our church. If they're a troublemaker, a liar, they're under church discipline, they're here to cause violence. I'm not required to let them in, but I am required to call the people of God to gather. I'm mm-hmm. required to do that. So I think that there is uh, obviously room for considering liability. We have liability insurance in most of our churches. We have liability and we drive on the highway and whatnot. It's not, oh, because we have liability insurance, we're not trusting in the sovereignty of God. But when you're disobeying the explicit commands of scripture, meet, gather, visit the sick, anoint the sick with oil. When you're explicitly denying the practicality of these things for two years, clearly you don't actually believe in the sovereignty of God. And some will react and say, I do too. Well, you do in the category of notitia Mm -hmm. and a census, but you haven't allowed that doctrine to transform your life in the way
0: that you responded to the events of the
1: world. So that's one.
0: Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's one thing to say, yes, Daniel should walk into the fire. And it's another thing to actually walk into the fire yourself. Right. Or the, not Daniel Shadrach, <laughs> yeah. Meshach, Abednego. or if I could uh, take that a little further, yeah, yeah. it's one thing to say, thank God <laughs> right. for the Jacob Rayums, the
1: James Coateses, the Tim Stevens, the Aaron rocks, all these guys that have taken us, but many people that applaud us wouldn't do it themselves. Mm-hmm. They benefit from The little bit and it's a very minor suffering compared to what Christ went through. But the the little tiny itsy bitsy bit of suffering I've gone through for Christ, while it pales in comparison to Christ, many Christians love to applaud you. Mm -hmm. They think it's your responsibility to do all the sacrifice, Mm -hmm. but they wouldn't do it themselves. Mm -hmm. So Yeah. Okay, so what's our second what's
0: the second doctrine?
1: Well, if my schedule is correct, we're gonna be celebrating Easter. Uh, this Sunday, Good Friday tomorrow, we had Palm Sunday last week. and fundamental to the what we call Easter is the resurrection, the bodily resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and the offer and assurance that those of us that have placed our faith in Christ alone now have of our own pending bodily resurrection. Mm-hmm. So when we die, To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but there's gonna come a time when our bodies, whether they've been deposited at the bottom of the sea or in a grave, that we will be resurrected and made new in the eternal order of things. Now, I think, Chris, sadly, that this Easter is gonna be one of the biggest acts of hypocrisy in the history of the Western church. What do I mean by that? That's a bold Mm -hmm. claim. Well, the resurrection teaches us to be hopeful in the face of death, to be fearless, to not be terrified by death. We have hope. And part of our public testimony to the world is to display that we're not afraid of death. We're not out looking for it, but we're not afraid of death. And yet it's undeniable that this narrative, this terror of dying is pervasive in the world. I'm proud of my one brother who uh, does some service work in public buildings. And he, he went into one building and someone said, I I wouldn't go into that apartment. I wouldn't, I wouldn't check that apartment out because there's a guy in there with, with COVID. He's, he's tested positive for COVID. Is he sick? Nobody's tested positive for COVID. That'll kill you. My brother's like, I don't care. I'm going in. And he went and did the service work that was required. And everyone was like shocked. So deadly. So deadly. Well, you know what? I've been exposed and many of us have to people who have the COVID virus, knowingly or unknowingly, hundreds of times during this pandemic, mm. hundreds of time. I've been around thousands and thousands of people. And the reality is we're still here. Could we die tomorrow? Sure, but I could also get killed in a car accident. I could die of a heart attack, right? I could die of a brain hemorrhage. But we've, we've created a culture that is so terrified by uh, death that even after in our own province, Masking mandates, for example, have been lifted by the health experts. Mm-hmm. By the so-called health experts. When I say, when I say that so-called, I mean because they're really only experts in biotic health. Uh, they're not experts in the broader constitutional elements of of human beings, and so their 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 approach to health is severely imbalanced. But anyway, I digress. Well. The, the experts that everyone wore the masks because you know they trusted in the experts, the experts have said you can take your masks off and you still have people running around with their masks on. That's not rational. It's not because the experts tell you have to. It's you now have created, uh, you, you just sort of changed the way you think. You're, you're terrified of death. And many of them are demanding that everyone else puts their masks back on. Mm-hmm. So pastors have participated in this. By going beyond the requirements for two years and by not out of respect for the public, but out of terror of death, even suspending communion, Mm -hmm. baptisms, weddings, funerals, (laughs) basically everything Mm -hmm. in the name of public health. And in doing so, they've disobeyed some direct commands in scripture, James 5 if anyone among you is sick let him call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Oh no, we're not going to do that cuz we might get sick ourselves. The text says is anyone among you sick and then there's not a parenthesis that says well you're allowed to go in if there's uh you know these kinds of uh symptoms but not if these kind not these kinds of symptoms, right? Mm-hmm. So we've literally not only left a lot of people to die alone. In fact, we get a message from a um dear sister in our church who's father or father-in-law is dying by himself. And our prayer quest is not so much to save his life, but let let him be released to come home to die with us. Mm-hmm. Obviously we have Hebrews 10, 25, which apparently no longer means that you you have to gather regularly for worship. Apparently it means something new now, but it does say do not neglect to meet together as some are in the habit of doing. And then we have our, This ridiculous notion that a winsome witness, a witness to the world is to do what the government wants us to do, and that's going to impress people in the world that the church is so loving and kind. I, I would like to know from all the compliant pastors out there, how many people have come to faith because they were so, so, so impressed that you closed your church? how many people have shown up the last few weeks now that lockdowns and mandates are lifted and said, you know what, what drew, what compelled me to come to the church is that you had the same fear that we did Mm -hmm. and you chose to lock down on and off for the last two years. And I just, man, I was so impressed by how loving you were. I bet you there's not one. And This is the kind of thing that we see. So rather than hiding and pretending, our worship is our witness. And if you get up this Sunday, fellow pastors, or you attend church this Sunday, and you dare to sing or preach on hope and fearlessness because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, I really, really hope you've repented first because shame on any Christian that has participated in a fear narrative, even exaggerating it beyond the exaggerations of the state, who then dares to tell people there is hope and healing in the resurrection. You can preach the facts of the resurrection, Mm -hmm. but if you don't allow the facts of the resurrection to change the way you respond to the potential of death, you have not allowed it to transform you and the fiducia is sorely, absent, unfortunately. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. man, that's convicting even to listen to and to just think about the times when in the past two years, you know, I have felt fear, obviously I've repented of it and walked in faith, but it is, it's incredible how if you let your emotions lead you, I remember the first time coming into a service where everybody is back, no chairs, or no chairs, distance, no masks, and being in my emotional state, like, Something feels wrong. (laughs) And then you're like, but logically, no, this is right. (laughs) We've always
1: done it this way. (laughs) Exactly.
0: But it's weird how you can get so like emotionally drawn into something. Right. And then you have to like, go back. What's the truth? Connect the dots. Yeah. Okay. Let truth transform, not the fear of the world. Right. So. Well, what's, what's crazy is, and I want to be careful because I, I, I know
1: that tomorrow or today, anyone in our church could die of anything. Mm-hmm. So I know that. But what's fascinating is that some of us have probably been around maybe upward, we've probably had upwards of 50,000 personal contacts. <laughs> <laughs> Hope the health know. <laughs> <lived> <laughs> the the <health> they <laughs> are there, whatever. 50,000 contacts through s- weekly services trucker convoys, protests with people that aren't buying all these protocols and we're still alive. Mm -hmm. This is, um, this is something for people to seriously consider. Now, I do know that many people have lived so strictly under all the health protocols that it's, they don't even know this. This is unimaginable to them. Um, be like, well, you've been around one person that wasn't masked? I can't believe you're not dead. Like some people actually believe that, mm-hmm. that if you're around 10 people, 100 people, 1,000 people, 25,000 people, you are basically you basically just signed your death warrant. Well, look at all the politicians as well that are on our side, many of whom don't even know Christ, who've attended rallies and protests with tens of thousands of people in tight quarters, no masks, not, no social distancing. And they're still alive. Mm-hmm. Like this, not, this idea that everybody's going to die, it's almost guaranteed if you don't follow the protocols, is so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, people have been living in these bubbles for so long. I, I get it. Like I've always been an advocate of a targeted protection plan. If, there's a, if you're diabetic, you're overweight, you're extra vulnerable, you probably should take extra precautions. Just like if you're not 16 and don't have your driver's license, you probably shouldn't be driving because you're young you're not necessarily all that bright yet and you're likely to make some bad mistakes in the highway like we depending on where we're at in life we mitigate against unnecessary death but what we don't do is we don't stop living for fear of dying mm-hmm.
0: that's right okay what's our third uh, doctrine that we want to chat about
1: the gospel the gospel and what i mean by the gospel is people need to understand the gospel is more than your conversion it's more than your conversion i i get a, lo- a lot of um I've had several messages. I was gonna say a lot from a lot of people, but they tend to be the same kind of messages from the same kind of people. Or I read stuff in other blogs or whatnot where people are like, just preach the gospel, Aaron. Just just preach the gospel. I'm like, what do you mean by that? Just tell people how to get saved and get to heaven. Oh, okay. So that's the sum total of the gospel for you? By the way, when, when a person repents of their sins and puts their faith in someone, who is it that they're putting their faith in? Jesus. Could you be a little more clear? Oh, Jesus Christ. Could you just be even, could you fine tune that a little bit more? The Lord Jesus Christ, you know who he is. I'm like, yeah, I do. What'd you call him? The Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what Lord means? It means he's king of kings and Lord of lords. That's his claims in scripture. As we identify the Lord Jesus Christ, he's the Lord over all creation. Read Colossians 1, that he might have preeminence over all When we pray the Lord's prayer, we say that your kingdom might come to earth as it is in heaven. We want want Christ's kingdom, oh, to earth, like just inside of our churches? Just inside of your little heart? No, we want the lordship of Christ to be manifested on earth just as it is in heaven, which isn't just at the foot of the the altar. It's everywhere. Prior to the cross, Jesus... So we had we had uh, Palm Sunday. What did Jesus do on Palm Sunday? He essentially approached Jerusalem on the colt and people paid homage to him as a king, a conquering mm-hmm. king, like he's returning from battle, but humble, riding on a donkey, not a mighty war horse, but he declares his kingship. He then goes and curses a fig tree and mark. He cleans the temple out. And lest you don't think that those are claims to authority, if you if you read the gospels right after he did those things, uh, claimed the kingship of Israel, cursed the fig tree, cleaned up the temple. He's immediately challenged by the authorities for doing so. And if you, if you, if you track the, the narrative uh, and by the way, he's making these claims publicly, not just in the synagogue, not just in some pre house church church. He's made not just with his disciples where they're having breakfast by the sea. He's making these claims, claims to be king and Lord publicly publicly they the people that were listening to him at the time understood that they didn't agree with it but they understood it so when his accusers sent him to Pilate it's like he's claiming to be king of the Jews on the cross he had a sign put up there the authorities had a sign put up that says he's the king of the Jews his opponents went went to the officials and said hey just can you change that just say that he claims to be king of the jews and he's like no i've said what I've, i've written what is written is written so publicly not just in the recesses of your heart in your prayer closet christ in the gospels declares his lordship so in order to repent of sin you have to affirm the lordship of christ over everything so the gospel is not just to be reduced down in fact if it was it's kind of a selfish gospel to your conversion the mission of God's the glory of God. The gospel of God is the glory of God. It's the kingship of Christ. So in the gospel, we're not just trying to get people out of hell and into heaven. We're also innately declaring as a prerequisite to repentance, even, that Christ Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So this is not some whacked-out gospel where we were saying that, um, you know, we're just trying to Christianize the world and uh make people obey Christ, but they're not really converted. They're going to go to hell in a handbasket anyway. It's not that it's not a works gospel. It's not reducing grace. It's not denying the, the work of Christ and the cross or the need for repentance or personal conversion, justification. It's not any of that. It's just, a, it's, we have to acknowledge that when we preach the full gospel of Jesus Christ, we're preaching his Lordship upon everyone without which it doesn't even make sense to repent of your sin because who are you, Jesus? Why should I repent to you? What, do you? what authority do you have over me? It's like, well, I happen to be king of kings and lord of lords. Not to mention the fact that there's huge blessings to people in terms of reducing suffering and wickedness and crime when Christ's lordship is more broadly recognized in culture. Mm-hmm. But the thing of it is, is, this is why I think that people, they they think they understand and say they believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they haven't thought it through to its logical biblical conclusions. And so, they say, Jesus is my Lord and Savior, and they say, Jesus Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and they sing songs about that. But the way they live their lives between here and heaven, they, they don't actually believe that. They haven't allowed that to transform the way they think, act and feel in space and time.
0: Yeah, okay, so I think, yeah, you've said a lot there. Um, Let's go to our fourth and final doctrine. Sure, well this is one I've been thinking about a lot lately because uh, it revolves around the redemptive
1: value of suffering and perseverance. So I I am not suggesting that we should love suffering, look for suffering. Certainly we don't want to contribute to suffering in a broken world, we want to alleviate it. But there are many Christians, including some who have stood up against tyranny that I think are now making a critical mistake in trying to do everything they can to avoid suffering. So there are some out there that are terrified of dying and there are some out there that are terrified of the state. I think the sin that those that are terrified of dying are making is that they, they wanna try to extricate themselves from all possibility of physical suffering. But if you're like, ah, I don't believe that. I, I, you know, We live in a world of risk and reward. I have responsibilities to Christ and my family and mandates to work and so forth. And so I'm gonna expose myself to potential death but then strangely, you you refuse to expose yourself to any suffering, persecution, any pain as a result of your stance. Are you really any better? So we're not suggesting you should deliberately try to kill yourself physically, but you have to realize that in a physical world, you're going to be exposed to the possibility of death, if you're living your life according mm-hmm. to God's commands. And in the same way, if you're taking a stand for Christ, you have to put yourself in the crosshairs of suffering. So there's many passages in scripture that speak to the blessings that come out of suffering. Acts 8, Paul said, uh, God said of, uh, of Paul, go for he is my chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings. And then it goes on to say, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. In Philippians three, for whatever gain I had, Paul says, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I counted everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, for his sake, I have suffered. So it's predicted in Acts Mm -hmm. eight, it's fleshed out and acknowledged in Philippians three, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. In other words, I don't care what I've lost in this world in order that I might gain Christ, be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. In Colossians one, Paul says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. In Acts five, they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they'd been considered worthy to suffer for, suffer shame for his name. And second Chronicles one for our hope, our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. So, there's many passages of the Bible that teach us, okay, we don't want to suffer for foolishness, like just do dumb things and suffer because of our own stupidity. That's not, that's not it. We certainly don't want to create a culture where some are applauded for suffering and it's like, well, that's the job of the missionaries, the pastors, and... But it's not my calling to suffer. We want to avoid that. And there's no way to absolutely avoid suffering. But at the same time, when we suffer for Christ, that's a huge privilege and blessing. And we have to believe that because in our flesh, we don't like it. Mm -hmm. But suffering, Chris, serves to prune us of our addictions, our... The things that we hold too tightly to in the world, the things that we might trust in. There's a blessing to suffering that really helps us to focus on like what really matters to me. There are some people that will deny their own consciences just to go on vacations. They're not willing to suffer. They're not even willing to suffer the inconvenience of not being able to go on a vacation, they'll actually violate their own consciences and fold and buckle to the system because it's unimaginable to them that God might want them to not go on vacation this year, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to maybe question and challenge what they're truly excited about in life. Mm-hmm. We, we live in such a weak, wimpy culture and we're part of that too. And we're wanting the Lord to strengthen us suffering prunes us of the foolish things it's part of our witness it's we identify we're united with christ in his suffering people can see this is this is the one we follow we follow the we carry his cross we follow the path of suffering suffering disciplines us and we know of course it humbles us mm-hmm. especially when you're uh you know locked up or your money's taken away or your jobs taken away i mean you you gotta start exercising some serious dependency upon Christ rather than your resume mm-hmm. in order to get a job. And of course, in Job, Job, one of the main messages of Job is that we don't always have the answers, but we have a God that comforts us and we just need to trust in his sovereignty. So I had a prof once used to love to talk about the lament psalms, the lament psalm, lament, and lament, how we should lament. But as I've observed, the actions of many people who love the idea of lamenting and understand the reality of suffering, they've done everything in their power to avoid it. So there's those that um, will actually hinder their own sanctification and spiritual growth by doing everything in their power to avoid suffering, the very suffering that God wants to use to take them to the next level. And that is where you have many that would believe suffering is redemptive, but they refuse Mm -hmm. to actually subject themselves to it in order to allow God to use them and bless them. We love the heroes of the faith, the martyrs, the apostle Paul, those that were whipped, beaten, shipwrecked. And many of us, unfortunately, will live in a, live in a world and especially through this pandemic, and we won't even subject ourselves to the suffering of a dirty look because Mm -hmm. we didn't wear a mask into a store. Shame on us for that, but at the same time, may, may God by his grace correct us and help us to understand that while we don't necessarily need to pursue suffering, there is, we probably need more of it in order to grow up and
0: be mature in Christ. hmm As you go through all these four doctrines, one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is, you know, what we we become, what we, be, we behold is what some would say. And um, thinking about what we've looked to as our example in faith, uh, many of us have looked to examples of people who have gone before. And yeah, in one sense, we read the the Fox's book of martyrs and see the martyrs and taking a, a brave stand. But in our actually immediate cultural context, we've seen not the way of suffering and it's not really the popular way to look to like, nobody follows the person that's suffering all the time. Right. So. Yeah. Uh, they generally run like
1: at the foot, at the, uh, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and the night before the crucifixion, um, you know, in the in the in the darkness, it was Peter succumbed to the temptation to run mm-hmm. to deny Christ. Right? Judas did, of course. He wasn't regenerate in the first place, but uh, it is it is humanly it can humanly be kind of scary to expose yourself to suffering, and again we fight against tyranny and evil because we don't want people to have the freedom to steal other people's freedom or to cause other people to suffering to suffer but at the same time any and i, and I you know i've had some sleepless nights and some dark nights of the soul so to speak but any suffering that i have experienced so far is pretty minimal compared to what many historical Christians have experienced, it probably hits me harder than it should because I'm used to a relatively high degree of comfort mm-hmm. in in the West and in, in the church. But I now believe the church must suffer and has to suffer more in order that we might be sanctified to the next level. And those that refuse to expose themselves to suffering either will be outed as false believers or will be perpetually stunted in their spiritual growth in this life because they are so concerned about what people think, uh, this false view of what a faithful witness is, um, avoiding death, avoiding the, the disease, that they literally will compromise their convictions and their beliefs in order to desperately cling to a life that ultimately they can't take with them. So I want to encourage people to uh, assess and analyze what they believe and whether they're actually just practicing notitia or whether they've assented to it and are willing to live it out. Fides viva, practice a living faith that, uh, takes what they say they believe and puts it into practice starting today.
0: Well, the great thing about a podcast like this is you can hit the proverbial rewind button and rewind and listen to those points again and think through them logically to think and carry them out to their logical conclusion and figure out, are you living Uh, for Christ. Thank you, Aaron, for today. Just a reminder to our listeners that you can hear this podcast on the Fight Laugh Feast Network. You can download their app to get the podcast as well as many other podcasts from friends of ours across Canada and the United States. As well, you can hear this podcast over on the CJXC radio, Canada's constant Christian companion, both at 11 a.m. Tuesdays and 11 p.m. on Thursdays. So make sure to like, subscribe, and share this podcast. Hit the uh, hit the um, yeah the share button to get this out to more people, and then tune again next week to another episode of Leadership Now with Dr. Aaron Brock.